Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Good morning and happy Lord's Day to you. I'm so delighted you've chosen to join us for worship. My name is Joel. I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors here at Covenant Church, and I want to welcome all of you. Those of you who are a regular part of the Covenant family, I'm so delighted that you've joined us. If you're a guest and you've just kind of stepped into this virtual church, we welcome you. We look forward to the day when we can open our doors and welcome you properly. But until then, thanks for being here with us. And if you would like to let us know that you're here, you can put your name, address, and other information along with any prayer concerns that you have in an email to prayer at covenant-mail.com. For that matter, uh, any prayer concerns you may have, any needs, any counseling, if you want a pastor to call you uh, or with obvious social distancing to even pay you a visit, uh, there are ways that you can, you can just reach out to us there at prayer at covenant-mail.com. Let us know what you would like and we'll do our best to serve you. Uh, we also recognize you're joining us from any one of five online channels right now, but if you're watching us over either the YouTube or Facebook platform, uh, give a thumbs up to the people that have joined me on stage who are leading us in worship, uh, who have made the trek out to help us with that, and also uh, our technical production team. Some of them are working remotely from home. Some of them are up in the tech booth right now working. Just let them know you appreciate them, and let us know who you are and where you are viewing from. We would love to know how far and wide this has gone. If you have a friend who just needs some hope today, I've got a message that I've looked forward to in this current series to preach for several weeks now. I'm so excited to bring it to you. You may want to share this if you're on Facebook in particular with a friend who needs it. We look forward uh, to worshiping with you today. Also, we're going to be having the Lord's Supper in a few moments. We made this announcement several days ago, uh, but if you need to, now would be a great time to get the elements together around your home, some bread or some crackers. Uh, any kind of juice really will suffice. The closest you can get to the fruit of the vine, uh, the, the better it would be in order to share with those members of your family who have confessed Christ and believed in him. But first, I want to begin by a reading from God's word, and then we're going to worship for just a few moments. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For, though, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions 
and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for very practical instruction that is not merely a list of do's and don'ts, but is tied inextricably to a power that is ours so that we can have even as we sit wherever we sit this morning. Father, I pray that the proclamation of this set of verses would transform lives today. I pray, Father, for you to make good on your promise that your word will never return void. And as we began, begin today, not by, not by preaching it, but by singing it to you and reaffirming our song uh, to each other in song. And as we continue to see it exemplified and symbolized in the elements of the Lord's Supper, Lord, may we draw closer to you today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that he was betrayed and before he was to be crucified, Jesus gathered with his disciples in an upper room to celebrate the Passover meal, something that he and his fellow Jews had been observing for a millennia and a half up until this point. And in that moment, Jesus changed the meaning of that Passover, taking the bread, he graphically tore it, passed it among his disciples, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you. And then he took the cup and he passed it among his disciples, saying, this represents the new covenant of my blood that is poured out for you. And then he issued this command that has been passed down and for 2,000 years has been observed and obeyed by his church. Do this in remembrance of me. I want to invite you now to gather those elements around your home as we remember the body and the blood of the Lord. We're able to do this in the way that we're doing it now because at Covenant, we believe that the Scripture teach, teaches this is a symbolic expression of our remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection. There's nothing about those crackers or that juice that you're about to consume that ingests any faith or any kind of salvific efficacy into your life or the lives of your family members and loved ones. Joel doesn't have to touch it in order for you to benefit from it. Uh, you benefit from simply remembering what it stands for. But we still do this carefully because we're also warned in the scriptures not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. So let me simply stress at this moment that this is an observance that is for those who have turned from their sins and put their faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so if there's a family member there who has not yet made that decision to follow Christ, let me just say to you in love, wait until it actually represents something you believe and someone to whom you have given your life. Not only will you avoid some of the dangers that Scripture speaks about, but if you wait until that moment, that moment will mean something to you. And with that, let me encourage you to think of this as well, as we're still kind of in the middle of uh, uh, some days that none of us anticipated, even as recently as eight weeks ago. Uh, let me remind you of something I said several weeks ago, and I'll be candid with you, things I've had to remind myself of in, in certain moments over the last several weeks. Not only that this will end, but that neither my life nor yours, nor my hope nor yours is defined by this moment. It's defined by one that happened 2,000 years ago. A death for my sin 
a bodily resurrection that guarantees me eternal life, guarantees you that as well if you belong to Jesus. That is the moment that can never be taken away. And that's the moment that we remember now. And so if you will, take the bread, whatever expression you have of that, and let us remember together that Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After that, Scripture says our Lord took the cup, and in a pandemic, we take our individually packaged uh, plastic bottles, but of the fruit of the vine, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me, and we remember furthermore what the author of Hebrews said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. I have hope. Not based on whether or not I get to go to a restaurant in a couple of weeks, but based on the fact that someone died as my substitute and bore the penalty for my sins. Let's do this now in remembrance of our Lord. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, ever-present Holy Spirit, thank you for a tangible expression Lord, of a day when there are people we cannot touch that we would love to. There's something you've given us that's been around for two millennia that is tangible. That though it has no inherent magic in it, somehow causes our minds, our hearts, and our spirits to go back to that moment and be able to touch it almost as though we were there. But Lord, these elements also help us to look forward to a time when there will be no more pandemics, no more sickness, no more wondering what's going to happen. Nothing but the eternal glory of your face as we gather around that marriage supper together. May we anticipate that, look forward to it, and until we reach then, that moment, may we find joy in our relationship with you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an honor to be with you today. I want to thank you for, uh, for particularly for those of you who are part of the Covenant family, I just want to say a brief word uh, to thank you for your faithful giving during this time. I know there are a lot of our own folks, a lot of people even in the region that are hurting. And one of our first questions was, how can we reach out and how can we help? And I have been absolutely delighted to see how our faithful financial partners have, have continued to give in that. Listen, we've already fed hundreds of families, not only through the normal course of our food distribution through our food pantry, but now through a community lunch that's been led by a host of volunteers. Uh, we actually, in fact, if you'll look for it on social media, starting tomorrow, you'll see we've got another location this coming Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday in Ransom trying to make it as easily accessible as possible for anyone in need to come and to get a meal on us. Uh, we've fed hundreds of families. We've got some folks, some great volunteers who've made hundreds of masks uh, that all of a sudden came into high demand when they were recommended by the CDC. There's all other kinds of ways that we either are already serving our community or are preparing to as we look at what's next in this. Uh, and we're delighted to do that, and we're able to do it 
because you give. And so, and of course, on top of all that, we're still here every Sunday. We're still discipling your children and your teens. We're still welcoming new people into this fellowship. We just had 13 people go through Discover Covenant. Uh, we're about to have another Discover Covenant today. And if you'd like to be a part of that, uh, just send us a message at prayer at covenant-mail or at Delisle at covenant-mail, and we'll get you a link to the Zoom session on that. Uh, God is still at work doing incredible things, and for those of you whom he has blessed to continue to be able to give, thank you for allowing us to be able to serve in this way. And at any point throughout or even after this message, if that's something you would like to do, go to givetocovenant.com. We're in Galatians chapter 5 this morning, continuing a series called The Grace Driven Life that we started back in mid-January. And when we started in January, I have to be honest to you, uh, with you from a personal perspective, this is the text that I look forward to getting to more than any other because it truly unlocks our access into everything that Paul has been talking about. You know, when you come here to the campus on any day other than a Sunday, and if it's a time when the office is not open, and of course during, uh, pan we have pandemic hours now, like most people, we're open about three hours a day, four days a week now, trying to keep it to the minimum. But if you come here and there's no one here to let you in, and it's not on a Sunday, a normal Sunday, and even really today, we're not allowing uh, the general public into the facility for reasons of safety, you're going to have a hard time getting in. And the reason for that is because the doors are not just locked, they're electronically sealed, and each door is coded electronically. Now, there are people around here a lot smarter than me that know exactly how that works. Uh, we just upgraded the system a couple of months ago, in fact. But you need a key to get in this building. And the key you have will determine the level of access that you have in the building. And so if you're a staff member, for example, you're, you're going to get issued a key and you're going to be able to get into any external door into the building, but you may or may not be able to get into other areas. For example, the, the office suite where the pastors uh, do their work and, and maybe another place on campus where our financial records are kept, another place on campus where highly confidential counseling records are kept. Not just anyone gets access into that. Everyone has a limited amount of access. You might get into this department, but you might not be able to get into that department. Now, you can get full access, but it requires something called a master key. I happen to have one here. This is actually one of our old ones from the old system, but the new ones look kind of like this. This was, under the old system, Pastor Joel's master key. With that key, I could go anywhere I wanted to on campus. I could access any door I wanted to. That card granted me unlimited access. Now, we've been talking about the grace-driven life, and one of the things Paul has hammered home to us is that there's simply no way to gain access to that life, let alone to live it, by the works of the law, by, by putting up a list of rules, even if those rules are a part of something we call the Word of God. You don't live a life driven by grace simply by looking at those and trying to obey them. And the chief reason for that is because you can't. You can't do that, nor can I. And so by the time we got to the end of chapter 2, we saw that the answer to this is that Christ must live in me and for me and through me. So I am crucified with Christ, and this is what that life looks like. If you rely on the law, you'll never, 
ever live the life God intended. It'll be like trying to get into an access into a life that you don't have a key for. But in these next verses, Paul's going to tell us that you, me, everybody in the world has a master key. You don't have to get a job or be on the payroll at a church or have a title like lead pastor to get this master key. No matter who you are or where you're watching from right now or what's in your past, God gives you, God offers you eternal life through Jesus. And not only that, he offers you a master key that unlocks every single part of the life that God intends for you to live. And Paul's going to reveal that master key to us in these verses. That key is a person. And that person is one whose name is the Holy Spirit. St. Basil, many centuries ago, said the following about this third person of the Godhead. He existed. He pre-existed. He coexisted with the Father and the Son before the ages. Even if you can imagine anything beyond the ages, you will discover that the Spirit is even further beyond. So the Holy Spirit is God, the third member of the Godhead. And Jesus, in prophesying his coming, told us the following in John 16. He said the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to do four things. He's going to, number one, convict the world of sin. Number two, he's going to guide us in all truth. When we don't know the right decision to make, we're going to have somebody whispering in our ear and telling us, this is the way, walk in this. Number three, he's going to declare to us all the things that are to come. And number four, he's going to glorify the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, in everything he does. Now think about that for a minute. Think about the job of the Holy Spirit, the role that Jesus prophesied he would fulfill, those four things primarily, and think about how that correlates with the very things that people who call themselves Christian are commanded to do. We're commanded on a daily basis to repent of sin. We're commanded to walk in truth and righteousness, to not walk about in darkness. We're called to boldly declare that truth to others, and we are called in doing all of that and everything else we do and every other decision we make to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the last four and a half chapters, Paul has written words to convince Galatians, the law won't do that for you. It won't do any of that for you. The law can describe righteousness for you. The law won't make you righteous. The law won't empower you to overcome your sin. If you've been struggling with sin and you think, well, another rule ought to do it, another boundary ought to do it, another accountability partner ought to do it, those things are fine and good, but they by themselves will never get you to that destination. Today, we can introduce to exactly how that happens. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit who is that all-sufficient master key into the grace-driven life. I want you to see four things that the Holy Spirit does for us to empower us to live in exactly the way that Paul described for us in Galatians chapter 2 when he said, it is Christ who lives in me. Number one, the Holy Spirit overcomes our flesh. Paul says in verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not desire, gratify rather, the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
I want you to see a few things here. First off is the mutual exclusivity between flesh and spirit. The way Paul describes them here tells us that they are like oil and water. They cannot coexist simultaneously in the same. You can't have one controlling you and the other controlling you at the same time. Somewhere around a hundred years ago, there was an American theologian who began to teach that there are spiritual Christians who live the way they're supposed to. There are people who are not Christian who don't live the way they're supposed to. But in the middle are people who have accepted Jesus as their Savior, but they haven't yet bowed to him as Lord. And the way you know that is because even though they are Christian, they are carnal Christians. I got a hundred dollars for anybody who can find that for me in the Bible. And I don't even have it on me right now. And trust me, I'm not going to need it because I've read the Bible. It ain't there. There's no such thing. I grew up in South Carolina and I was both subjected to, and then later on subjected others to this thing called a snipe hunt. You may or may not have heard of this. Uh, hopefully I'm not giving things away to parents who want to really punk their kids uh, when they get to a certain age, but we would, we would describe this creature called a snipe. It was sort of part raccoon, part possum, uh, part chipmunk, part squirrel, uh, and, and, and this is what you do. You take a bag and you get three or four people out in the woods and you get them to yell something. sounded kind of ridiculous, but that was the way that you would call the snipe, same way you'd call a deer or a turkey, and after about 30, 40 minutes of them trying to do it and wondering, and even a couple of them thinking they'd seen one, we just kind of leave. Just leave them out there in the woods. It's one of the greater practical jokes of the Deep South. I used to love it. But when people talk about this thing called a carnal Christian, it's a theological snipe hunt. There's no such thing. No such thing. Which means you either have life in the Spirit or you have life in the flesh. You're going to have to pick one. If you're walking in the Spirit you're walking in the Spirit. You might be walking in the flesh. You are never doing both simultaneously. And so here's the thing you got to look at. It, it really doesn't matter. We, we believe, for example, here in speaking in tongues, but it doesn't matter if you speak in tongues if you're simultaneously sexually immoral. You're walking in the flesh. It doesn't matter how high you lift your hands. It makes no difference whatsoever if you're treating your spouse like dirt. The winsomeness of your personality, your advanced degrees in theology means zero if your children are exasperated by your leadership in the home. Your prayers, your moving words, your emotions change nothing if you're a dishonest employee. If you want to truly walk in the way of Jesus, you cannot continue to walk in the flesh. Conversely, you want to crucify your flesh, the way to do that is not to revert to the law, but to walk in the Spirit. Now, now here's the encouragement of this, of this word. This battle between flesh and spirit, it's not a stalemate. As long as you walk in the flesh, it's going to lead to one of two things. We talked about this for the last two weeks. Either rebellion on the one hand, okay, giving in to your sin nature, which enslaves you to your sin. That's not what God wants for you. Or on the other hand, religion. That's law-keeping which also enslaves you, sometimes even to your own pride. Paul would later talk about his own struggles in this regard when he, he wrote the following in Romans 7. He says, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the evil that I refrain from. And then he concludes with this, this verse, Romans 7, 25, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You ever felt that way? 
Or maybe you feel that way now, or you're trapped in this cycle of sin and dysfunction. Maybe there's an addiction that keeps whipping you. Maybe there's something going on that keeps circling back around in your life and having victory over you, bringing defeat into your life. You set up personal boundaries and new account- accountability measures, and the only thing those are for is for you to violate them at the very first moment of fleshly impulse, and you just can't seem to get a handle on this. And maybe it's brought you spiritually and mentally to this place where Paul was. I feel like I'm trapped in a bad cycle that's bad for me and bad for my parents if I'm a young person still living with them and bad for my spouse, bad for everybody around me. Who will set me free? Here's what you need to know. This battle between flesh and spirit doesn't have to be a stalemate. It's winnable, but only by the Spirit of God. You need him, I need him to overcome the flesh. And when he does that, he'll do something else. He'll help us to avoid the curse. Paul continues in verse 19 by saying, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that last sentence really should get your attention if any of the things before characterize your life. Not if you slip up and blow it every once in a while, but if these things characterize your life. Now, we need to understand what these things are. The Bible, when it uses the term flesh, it uses it as a metaphor. When it uses the term flesh, it doesn't mean literally this stuff that's covering up my my muscles and my bones and my vascular system. Uh, In fact, God created this part of me. There's something about the human body that is uniquely holy, in fact. And so God's good intention is embodied, if you will, in our bodies. Our bodies are created by God. They're not inherently sinful, and therefore our natural appetites by themselves are not inherently sinful. And so physical pleasure is not sinful. In fact, God smiles on that when it's done according to the pattern that he has prescribed, whether that's just really enjoying a good meal or a good laugh, hanging out with some friends, making love to your spouse, whatever you might be doing. God, God's good intention is that we should enjoy those things. The problem is not our flesh. The problem is not physical pleasure. The problem is when our fallen nature that is characterized by sin from the moment we are born begins to pervert and twist and ultimately as a result of that destroy everything about God's good intention for us. And the tendencies of our old nature is downward. It's downward. So so Paul's talking about sinful actions that are the symptoms of someone living under a curse. We've been told far and wide over the last eight weeks that just because you have a cough doesn't mean that you have this virus. I'm thankful for that. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people now that when I'm out in public, even when I'm with my mask on and I feel like I need to cough, I will almost choke myself from, to keep from doing it because I don't want to look like the guy that's coming out who's infected. I don't want to be that guy that everybody's looking at, that everybody's wondering about. But we do know that a cough by itself may not indicate COVID-19, but a cough combined with a fever, combined furthermore with severe shortness of breath, means there's a really good chance 
that this is something very serious if it's not the virus itself, and you need to go. You need to get some help for that. Well, Paul here is describing four groups of sinful activity. He's not saying that if you're a follower of Jesus, you will never sin. What he is saying is that those who are not followers of Jesus have the following symptoms, and these symptoms aren't just like a quick cough in a grocery store. It's that hack that comes up from my lungs that I can't stop, and I know all of a sudden, wait a minute, this is a problem. It's things that are so deeply ingrained and so characterize my life is that I cannot escape it. And if that's true of me, there's a really good possibility that I will not inherit the kingdom of God until I get rid of those things. So it's important that we look at these, starting with sins of immorality, sexual immorality. That's the Greek, the Greek term porneia. You may recognize that, or, or it's the root word for our English word pornography, but this word really transcends what we might think of when we normally think of porn. It certainly includes porn, so for those of you who say, well, porn's not really in the Bible, it is. Stop being an idiot. Repent. Do what you need to do. Give us a call. We'll help you with that. I promise you you're not the only one, but you better stop that crap before it destroys your life. Porneia, as we understand it in the Greek text, is any and all deviation from God's original intention for our sexuality. That then leads to impurity. This just where it simply means uncleanness. Yesterday I was doing some yard work and I had some colored um, mulch. It was black. And when I got done, my hands were just as black as this Bible cover. And so I had to get that washed off. And so as a result of what I was doing, digging in that mulch, uh, my hands became impure. My wife wouldn't let me hug her. I have no idea why. Until I washed my hands, right? That's impurity. Spiritually, it's the spiritual defilement that comes as a direct result of sexual sin. Then Paul goes on and talks about sensuality. This is a desire for sin in general. Not merely sexual sin, but it's basically describing an attitude towards sin. It's one thing for me to slip up and repent. It's one thing for me to blow my stack and then say I'm sorry and then repent and try to get better than I was yesterday, better tomorrow than I am today. It's another to actually desire such sin, to take pleasure in such sin. The Bible commentator William Barclay describes this as a love for sin that is so reckless and so audacious that a man has ceased to care what God or man thinks of his actions. That's the sin of immorality. That's the sin of immorality. Secondly, there's sins of idolatry, beginning with this simple word idolatry, the worship of anything other than God. Coupled with this is the word sorcery, witchcraft. You may find it interesting to note that the Greek term for this is the word pharmakia. And yes, it's the root word from which comes our English words, pharmacology, pharmacist. Now that man or woman in the white coat who just gave you pills over the last 30 days to keep your blood pressure in check, they're a good guy, all right? They're a good person. Those things are good. You keep doing that. But when, when the ancient world heard this word, they didn't think about that kind of professional individual. Immediately, their minds would go to black magic and demonic control. Sometimes that demonic control would involve the illicit use of mind-altering drugs, occult practices, sins of idolatry. I can't lean into God. I've got to lean into something else. Thirdly, sins of animosity. So these are sins we commit against each other, starting with enmity. You know what that word means? Hatred. How many times have we seen that word in our culture today? Don't hate. Stop 
hating on me. You're just a hater. We have used this word to describe so much today that it means nothing anymore. Especially when the way we've used it is when there's just an argument we don't know how to counter and so we're intellectually lazy and we call someone a hater as a means of silencing them because they disagree with us and what they've said has made us uncomfortable. That's not hatred. Hatred refers to the willful, destructive selfishness in me that results in a breakdown of what could otherwise be a close relationship with a fellow human being. That's going to cause something Paul calls strife, ill will among brothers and sisters. The perpetual holding of a grudge. Someone who's always looking for a fight. Someone who always has to be right. That then could lead to what Paul refers to as jealousy. Are you a jealous person? Do you want what other people have? At the root of all jealousy, you know, is a refusal to thank God and to be content with what God has provided you. Jealousy at root is a lack of thankfulness. So it's not just a sin against your fellow human beings who may have more than you. It's a sin against God who has said what you have is sufficient for the moment. Fits of anger. This is interesting. Do you fly off the handle and rather than repent, you just excuse it? Are you one of those people? It's funny how in the evangelical church we look at sexual sin, as we should, because Paul just did, and we call that sin, and we have no issue condemning it. But then when it comes to anger, there's the excusing of it. Well, I'm just this way. You know, my mama was this way. She blew her stack, and her daddy was this way, and it's just, it's, it's hereditary. Well, I agree with you. It is hereditary. It goes all the way back to your father, Adam. Like a lot of other things, you don't want characterizing your life. Now, do you struggle? Do Christians struggle with their temper? Of course they do. Do Christians need to repent? Yes. Are Christians ever going to ultimately finally conquer? Possibly. Maybe not. This struggle with sin is going to happen for our entire lives. But does a Christian blow their stack constantly and merely excuse it or think it's no big deal and leave a big stack of bodies in their wake? Absolutely not. If that characterizes you, it ain't because your mama's Irish, it's because your father is the devil. And these are the things that Paul calls our attention to. These are people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Rivalries. Rivalries. This is the kind of person for whom every relationship is a competitive relationship. Am I better than them? Am I on a higher level of society than they are? Do I have more money than they do? That then leads to dissension. Party spirit uh, divides up even the body of Christ into elite classes within the body. Divisions, when program leaders even divide for their own gain. Envy. Then it all comes back to envy, doesn't it? All comes back to something like envy or jealousy. These are sins of animosity, sins against our fellow brothers and sisters. Fourthly, sins of intemperance, beginning with drunkenness. Now, sometimes we'll, we'll have this conversation as a church family. Is it a sin for a follower of Jesus to drink wine or beer or liquor or anything like that? Pastor, I'm you know, can I have a margarita during the pandemic? I mean, at least, can I at least do that? And I will tell you, of course you can. Of course you can. Um, I, there, there are brothers and sisters of mine who don't believe that's right, who believe that a Christian ought to just abstain from all of that. I respect that. I really do. I have no idea what they're going to do at the marriage supper with all that wine flowing, but I get it. I get it. 
And I get the wisdom of that position, that sometimes that's the thing to do. But sometimes, in, when, when, we, when we mock someone who has that conviction, sometimes it's because there's some insecurity in our own heart. Because our propensity is to go in the other direction. Listen, I'd much rather have a teetotaler than a drunk. I would. You know why? Because this is one of those characteristics of a life. It's symptomatic of a person who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I am amazed at the number of Christ followers who think this is no big deal. Alcohol abuse was a common feature of urban life in the Roman Empire. Brothers and sisters, excessive drinking is nothing to snicker at. It is incompatible with real commitment to Jesus. And at least part of the reason for that is because it's combined with something, the English word orgies. That means at least partly what you think it means, but it really means more than probably just what you're thinking. The word as it occurs in the Greek text, occurs two other times in the New Testament, and it's always, I mean, every single time, it's been linked with someone who's had too much alcohol. So don't think about somebody who accidentally made some kind of home pornography. Think more about somebody who thinks it's no big deal to be that proverbial person dancing with a lampshade on their head. That's what he's describing, out of control. The, the kind of behavior that happens when you and I lose our faculties as a result of substance abuse and the absolute ugliest side of us comes out, whether it's religion or whether it's rebellion, both lead to sins like these. Now, if you tilt toward religion, you're going to be more prone to some of these, like envy or fits of anger. If you're more prone to rebellion, you're going to be Probably more, if you tilt that way, you're going to be more prone to, to things like immorality or intemperance. But here's Paul's point. Neither of those routes leads to saving faith. Saving faith means Christ lives in me. Here's a real simple fact, brothers and sisters. If Jesus lives in me, there are some things Jesus just will never do. So if I'm doing them, I have some serious questions to ask myself. If he lives in me, my disposition toward those things is going to be different. Does it mean I'm never going to struggle again? Of course not. I'm going to struggle. Are we going to fail? Yep, we absolutely are going to fail. Will we live a life that is characterized by willful, sinful behavior and ambivalence toward that same behavior? If we belong to Jesus, no way. No way. And anyone whose life is characterized by the things Paul describes here is living enslaved. They have no master key. They're either living enslaved to religion or they're living enslaved to rebellion, but they're enslaved nonetheless. They're living under a curse. God sent the Holy Spirit to you and to me so that we could avoid that curse. You know how he does that? By empowering us to do something that you and me could never do on our own. The Holy Spirit helps us to fulfill the law. These are two of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now here's the great news. Against such things, there is no law. You can do this all you want. There's a lot of things I can't do right now. I can't go to a restaurant. I can't get a haircut. 
You may say, well, you look a little different. Well, we did the home thing. Trust me, you don't want to see the back of my head right now, right? There's certain things you can do, certain things you can't do. But throughout this whole period, our governor has said, you can go outside. I've encouraged our people when they say, man, I'm just so sick. I got cabin fever. I'm like, we've got three football fields worth of green space on our campus. Just come, enjoy it. Bring your mask in case there are other people here. You want to be careful, but, but enjoy it. There are certain things, even in a pandemic, against which there is no law. Paul has said you can live enslaved to the law, or you can live in rebellion to God, or you can live in the way that God has called you to live, which is liberated, and live that way to the hilt as much as you possibly want and be assured that you will never, ever, ever in having these things characterize your life do anything that will violate the law of God. You, you start to see the contrast here, don't you? It, it really could not be more clear. And the fruit of that spirit, I want you to know, it's singular. These are not fruits of the Spirit, as if they're all taken separately. Fruit of the Spirit means that just as you have symptoms of spiritual illness, there is one sign of the Holy Spirit's work in your life, and that sign manifests itself in all of the following ways. Love, joy, peace. Those were familiar watchwords to the early Christians. They're comparable to another triad we see in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. And these are the direct result of a right relationship with God. Paul goes on to describe patience, kindness, goodness. These are definitions explicitly of how you and I are supposed to relate to, to other people. Long-suffering. I'm patient. I don't lose my patience. I got a long wick, just like my God, because if the spirit of a God who endured you and me without damning us to hell resides in us, that's going to affect our level of patience with other people, don't you think? It's just going to. Spirit-filled people are kind, benevolent, generous people. Faithfulness, Paul will continue to say, gentleness, self-control, descriptions of personal piety, because spirit-filled people Here's their number one characteristic. It's not that they perform miracles, although sometimes they can. It's not that they speak in tongues, although sometimes they can. Here's the overwhelming description of a spirit-filled individual. They are faithful to Jesus every single time. They are humble in their disposition. They have mastered their desires and their passions. And this is perhaps the most obvious contrast between those who walk in the Spirit and those who walk according to the flesh. Notice this difference as well. He doesn't contrast the works of the flesh with the works of the Spirit. Sometimes we misapply this famous text by saying, okay, well, let's get this list together, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Let's just take them, let's just do one a week, right? And so this week I'm going to pick love and I'm going to do my, my best to be more loving this week, and then the next week, I'm going to be more joyful than I've ever been, and then the next week, I'm going to be more peaceful than I've ever been. You ever tried that? Because here's generally the way that works out. By the time you get to patience, you've lost all your love. You know why? Because you can't do it. You can't do this. 
This is not, when you apply this text in that way, what you're saying is to be filled with the Spirit, you must do all of these things. Brothers and sisters, that's just another form of legalism. This is not the works of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. If I've got an apple tree on my property, I don't have to put forth any effort to get that thing to produce apples. It's just going to happen. And similarly, if the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your heart, if he is truly empowering you to live the grace-driven life, it's not the works of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. These are the kinds of things that he will work into you. You don't work them out. You can't. You, don't have, you can't work out anything you don't inherently have in. The Holy Spirit has to work that in. Think about just your most intimate relationships. I was doing a marriage conference many years ago, and there was a young single mom who came up to me afterwards after I'd spent a session talking to the men about the role of husbands. And she talked about the, just some mistakes that she'd made, just being a bad judge of character, among other things. And she said, I, I really appreciate what you had to say, Pastor, particularly about those characteristics. And I've taken very careful notes. And if I ever do this again, I'm going to make sure I find a good man. And I was being a little facetious in my response. But I said, well, that's, that's all well and good, sister, but there really are none. And it surprised her a little bit. She said, what do you mean there are none? I said, well, there are no good men. We're all pigs. Every stinking one of us. Now, God can take a pig and fill him with the Holy Ghost, and then you got something to work with. So rather than say, I want to find a good man, let's talk about finding a Holy Spirit-filled man. Ephesians 5 says, that man will love you like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And I can promise you, As a member of the male gender, there is not one single solitary male on this planet, this one included, who can do that in our flesh. Matter of fact, we don't even want to do that in our flesh. We just want to sit on the couch and drink beer. That's all we want to do. That is not who we are. This is why before that command, he gave this command in verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, which is excess, but be filled with wine the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, when you and I, when we walk in sync with the Holy Spirit, He works inside you, making you more like Jesus. And when you have the character of Jesus, you will live like Jesus. Rebellion is your natural disposition. Mine too. Religion can't help you with your rebellion. But the Spirit-filled life, this is what it looks like. It overcomes the flesh, it avoids the curse, it fulfills the law, and it does that finally by crucifying my sin. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Remember chapter 2, verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, Paul said. Nevertheless, I live. It is not I. It is Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's the point of these three verses. If Jesus did that for me, then what I must now do, if Jesus was crucified for me, My responsibility now is for that to happen to me. 
for me to crucify myself, to do it daily, to put to death my sin, to daily give myself over to the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the great news that's sort of packaged in between the lines here. What is assumed here is that the Holy Spirit has empowered you for this if you belong to Jesus. You can do it because the Holy Spirit who lives in you is capable of bringing it out of you. What does it look like to keep in step with the Spirit? What effect will that have on my relationships? Well, one of the things we see here is an absence of conceit. Uh, It's not going to be all about me. I'm going to actually start to live for other people. How does that affect your marriage, your relationship with your children, with your parents if you still live with them, your church relationship? Hang on about seven more days. We're going to talk about that next week because Paul's going to tell us this is what this looks like in community. But it's interesting, when we talk about the Spirit-filled life, we tend to focus on charisma, don't we? That's our propensity. Public persona. In a local church environment, that's the temptation, isn't it? To say, wow, wow, he's so anointed. Did you hear that message? Oh my gosh, the Holy Spirit was all over her. Did you hear that song? Well, I've been preaching for a while now, and that's true. And I'm grateful that it's true. It it happens. The Holy Spirit does show up when we sing. He does show up when we preach. And I am profoundly thankful when he does. I know my own heart. I know my own history. I know my own propensity. And I know that faithful delivery of God's word by this man does not happen apart from the Spirit of God. I'm very, very thankful for that. But here's the thing, most of us are not preachers or singers, at least not professional ones. Most of us will never stand on a stage to do anything like that. And if that's you, let me encourage you with this. What God has called you to do and the way he has called you to live is of no less redemptive import than what he's called me to do. Listen, I'm thankful for the power of the Holy Spirit in preaching, but those, believe it or not, those are not the most powerful experiences I've had with the Holy Spirit. Would you believe that? Uh, They haven't come while I was preaching. You know when I experienced them? I experienced them in moments of testing, moments of stress, moments when my anger could have gotten out of control, moments when my old self would have been abrasive and selfish toward my wife. But instead, instead I I found myself sacrificing for her or showing patience for someone else. I experience those most powerful moments when I get to the end of a 14 or a 15 hour day. They don't happen often, but occasionally they do. And many of you know what that's like. And I just want to crash. I just want to go to my recliner. I want to grab something to eat and something to drink. I want to turn on a game. I want to turn the lights off and I want everybody to leave me alone. But instead, I find myself somehow with both the energy and the enthusiasm to go upstairs and wrestle with my smaller kids, tuck them into bed and pray with them, go downstairs and sit on the couch and listen to my wife. I know that's to some wives like, what is that? My husband's actually, yeah, well, Amy will tell you, I have a hard time with this as well. So I can tell you when that's happening, it's not me. When I get to do those things, when I am empowered to do those things, I, you know, I experience the Holy Spirit at times when my flesh wants to act out 
in gridlock traffic or in a long line in Walmart or the grocery store. We're experiencing more of that now, aren't we? Everybody's loading up. You had that experience yet at Food Line or Super Walmart? There you are, mask on, pulling on your ears, giving you a headache. Uh, it's stuffy because you don't feel like you can breathe. There's the, you're all the way, you're halfway back one aisle. There's you know, only like four carts in front of you, but you got to keep six feet of distance away. And you, you look three carts up, and there's a woman with 14 packs of toilet paper. That's, there, she's apparently the reason you can't find one. It takes you a long, long time to get through, of all, uh, through all of that nonsense because we've got to do that now to, to be protected and to protect each other. You ever maybe been tempted to be in the flesh in the middle of a moment like that? You know, when I know the Holy Spirit's at work in my life, is in a moment like that when I let the single mom behind me go ahead of me or I unload the 80-something ladies, year-old ladies shopping cart for her as long as she feels comfortable with me doing that. And if you think, if you think I do those things because, well, that's just who Pastor Joel is, then you don't know Pastor Joel very well. And if you assume when you see others do it, that that's just who they are, then you're not familiar at all with what the scriptures explicitly teach about human nature. You don't know humanity very well. But I'm going to tell you, in those moments, in those moments, the Holy Spirit makes himself present in me and through me. And I am profoundly thankful. He didn't just save a wretch like he is sanctifying a wretch like me. And that same spirit-filled life is available to you. Would you like to have it? Let's ask him for it together. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. And yet, even your law cannot convert. It cannot empower it can only show us what you expect. Father, we thank you that it is not merely word, but it is word and spirit. And we thank you for that empowerment. And I ask you, Father, through TV cameras, into living rooms all over the tri-state area and the region, and perhaps even the world, that you would impart that grace to others. If there are those who have examined their lives and held them up, just the, the symptomatic expressions of their behavior against this text and have come to the realization that they do not truly belong to you. Father, I pray that today would be the day they would give their lives over to you. Empower us now, Father, for the days ahead. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you for being here today. The gospel is simply this, that your sins, though you are created in the image and likeness of God, created for a purpose, that he designed for you before the foundation of the world, your willful rebellion against him means you're now separated from him. You are under rightful condemnation. Rightful. No less rightful than if you robbed a bank and were standing in front of a judge. You are guilty. But the Lord Jesus came into this world. He fulfilled every requirement of righteousness. And then he died because the penalty for your sins and mine is death. Jesus died as your substitute and mine to pay the penalty for our sin, and then he rose from the dead 
And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10 that if we will confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, in other words, I'm going to give him, I believe in what he did, and I'm going to give him absolutely every part of my life. I confess him as Lord because I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. It is, that, it is by that faith alone that the Bible says you are saved. All the promises I am describing, they become yours instantaneously in that the power to live the life that God intended for you to live. And I invite you today into that wonderful, Christ-centered, Spirit-filled life. If you'd like to reach out and have us counsel with you, if you'd like to communicate to us that you have decided to follow Jesus so that we can follow up with you, send us a message at prayer at covenant-mail.com. We're going to take a few moments now and sing together. And as we do, be obedient to whatever the Lord is calling you to do. Father, thank you for all of the hope that is in that one name. Lord, I pray that the name of Jesus not only has been glorified here today, but will continue to be glorified. Father, I pray for uh, just a number of folks to begin that path of bringing him glory today by receiving him as Lord and Savior. And as we begin to move toward conclusion of this time together. May your richest blessings be on those who are watching. And I make this prayer in the name of the one whose praises we have rightly sung. Amen. Thank you again for being here today. I do want to mention that give2covenant.com is the way for you to give online. You can also uh, drop it in the mail uh, to Covenant Church, P.O. Box 1674, Shepherdstown, West Virginia, Two five four four three. Thank you, thank you, thank you to those of you who have continued to be faithful so that our focus here can be on the community that God has called us to serve during these difficult times. And we look forward, even beyond what we're already doing, to sharing with you and inviting you to become a greater part of that service. For those of you who are signed up for Discover Covenant, I'll see you at 1 p.m. today. And uh, if you would like to sign up for that, dlyle at covenant-mail.com, and they'll get you signed up. You can meet us in the Zoom classroom, and it'll take about an hour and a half of your time uh, for us to go through this together. May God bless you. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.